Everyone has an idea, but is it right? Everyone seems to know what a Christian is, how the Christian life should look, and what kind of place the church should be. But are we even close? What if we could know? What if it looks different than we think? What if what God is building is more than a group of good people, but a community? Join us as we walk through the book of Philippians and see together a beautiful community. Kids ages uh, three through pre-K can head down to Holy Cross Kids Worship if you'd like. The rest of you, I invite you to open your Bibles to the uh, book of Philippians. If you don't have a Bible with you, our, our, the text for this morning is in your bulletin uh, right in here. If you don't own a Bible, that's all right. We've got some on the back table that we would love to give to you, uh, whether this is your first time in church or your uh, millionth time. We don't really care. If you don't own a Bible, we want you to have one. That's our gift to you. So go grab one at some point, whether it's now or uh, after the service, whatever's most comfortable for you. Uh, while you're doing that, let me remind us what we're doing. So we're taking the first part of 2016, the first part of this calendar year, and we are working through Paul's letter to the Philippians. And this morning, we're finishing up chapter 1, and the entire first chapter, to some extent, because I hope we, that we can all, if you've been here, you've seen this, the entire first chapter is like one long introduction or a greeting. What, what Paul's doing is he's helping this church that he loves, that, is, that loves him, know um, how he's doing, because they haven't seen him for a while, they've heard some bad stuff, so he, he wants to help them know how he's doing and why he's doing that way, and we see this as, as Paul talks about his situation, because he's in prison, but he seems to be okay with that. I don't know how many of us would ever be okay with that, but he's okay with that. Uh, he, he sees others preaching Jesus, and he's okay with that, even if it's meant to hurt him in some strange way. And even last week, we saw that he would be okay even if his imprisonment ended up with his death. In some way, like this, this bizarre in many ways to us. But this week, Paul turns the camera away from himself, and he turns it towards the church. He turns it towards, in, in many ways, us. What this does is these verses kind of set the framework, uh, cast a... a perhaps a forward glance towards what the rest of the letter is going to be about. He gives a command, and it's a command that we need to hear. So if you have your place, we're in Philippians 1, uh, verse 27. If you'd stand, that's our habit here, in honor of God's word. We're going to be reading verses 27 through the end of the chapter, which is just verse 30. This is God's word for us, friends. Only... Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for, your, that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I have, and now hear that I still have. This is God's word given for our flourishing. Would you pray with me? Lord, as we come to your word, we just ask one thing, that you would meet us there. We don't have to call you into this place. You have called us. We don't have to uh, do some kind of dance or some kind of uh, magic words to make you work. We can't do that. You are sovereign. But we come now and ask that you would do that out of faith, knowing that you hear us. Lord, some of us in this room are, are struggling with either doubts or just we just don't believe any of this. Others of us are, are, are hopeful to hear a word from you today. I pray you'd meet all of us exactly where we are and that you'd preach your gospel to us. 
For Jesus, you alone hold the words of eternal life. So speak, and speak clearly for your servants are listening. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Have a seat. So look, when you're a pastor, like I am, uh, you, you get asked questions. Lots of questions. Um, and, and now it's time for a recess. Uh, so you get asked lots of questions, and some of those questions are other, there, there, are, there are questions behind those questions that never get asked. So here's what I mean. Um, so sometimes, you know, I, I'll get a question or, or someone will ask me, like, should, should I marry so-and-so? And what actually is behind that question in the midst of, uh, uh, of that anxiety is, how can I know that my marriage will last, Right? Should I marry so-and-so is really about how can I know that this is going to last, which is a great question. Uh, It's way less sexy than you'd think in terms of the answer, but it's a great question. We don't have time for that today. But another question that's behind a lot of questions is about the church, what we do, why we do it. And the lingering question that tends to be behind that, like why do you do this, why do we do that, why don't we do such and such, the lingering question in the background there is what are we called to be as, as a church and as Christians? And that is a great question, too comes up a ton in new churches like this one, because we're all asking that to some degree. And it is the one that Paul's addressing here. What is great about the way he answers it, and he's not exhaustive, by the way, but he does answer it pretty clearly, is that it disrupts our expectations completely. So this morning, we're really just going to look at two points. Uh, there's, a, there's a little white paper in your bulletin that's an outline, if that's going to help you. We're going to look at two points. We're going to look at a singular command, and then we're going to look at worthy living. Okay, A singular command and worthy living. Really easy. Let's start with a singular command. Okay? Look down at verse 27, if you have your Bible in front of you. Paul says, only, and if you're in your Bibles, go ahead and underline that. Underline that word only, that's important. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now stop there. Paul begins this section with the word only. And, and for many of us, as we read that, especially if you're like familiar with the Bible or, or even not, just familiar with the English language, we tend to gloss over that word only because we're really used to vocal stops, right? You know what I mean by that. When you're having a conversation with someone, you go, uh, and, like, uh, those kind of things. We have vocal stops, and we tend to see this word only as a verbal stop, kind of a, just a filler. Paul is specific, however, about this word only. Uh, Here's a a little... um, helpful hint. In the original, it means only, right? So it's a, it's a very good translation of, of the word. But Paul is basically saying, this is the one thing I want you to do. In, in, in the original that Paul wrote in, you put words in the front to create emphasis. Word order isn't as important as it is in Greek in terms of you can mix things up all over the place. So he puts this word in the front. Here's the one thing that I want you to do. Now that's huge, right? Because if you hear someone in the Bible saying, okay, if you get nothing else, get this. That, that should raise our attention. And we, it needs, means we need to take some notes. But this isn't necessarily helpful, though, because the next thing he says is, live worthy of the gospel. Now, let me, let me break that down a little bit. When it says manner of life, that's a bit of a translational gloss. Our translators do that to help it mean something to us. Um, the word actually, in the original, means to, to um, live as a good citizen. To live as a good citizen, which to us isn't, uh, you know that clear. What he's saying is live as worthy citizens of the gospel. So, you know, what does that mean? Now, this would have been striking to the Philippians because in ancient Philippi, ancient Philippi was a Roman colony. Again, doesn't mean anything to us, but what it meant was the majority of the people living in Philippi were Roman citizens. 
Roman citizenship was something that's not like um, American citizenship, where American citizenship has certain things that go with it, but like Roman citizenship was like an exclusive club. And it meant that in, in the Roman territory, most of the people that lived there actually weren't citizens, believe it or not. You got your citizenship through a few different ways. You could be born into it. Like if your parents were citizens and you were born in, in, in their family, you would become a citizen. You could, you could get it through military service because, I don't know if, you, like in the ancient world, you're like, living in the, like working in the military, not that it's not today, but it, it's like you died of everything. Like you were in the cold, you were in, in, in crazy places, not just the fact that you're in a war and might get injured and, and hurt and there's no such thing as antibiotics. Like, so if you lived through military service, one of the, boons that they would give you for actually being a part of the military was citizenship. And then, of course, if you had enough money, you could, you could pay for it. Things haven't changed that much. Uh, so you could actually pay to be a citizenship. And that was a big deal. It was a worthwhile thing for a bunch of reasons. We don't have all the time to go into all those. But what Paul is saying here to these Philippian Christians, these people who many of whom, most of whom, in fact, probably were Roman citizens, he's saying... You know, and they're going to be proud of their Roman citizenship because not everyone has it. What he's telling them is, you are to live worthily of a citizenship that isn't Roman. In other words, your earthly citizenship, your citizenship in earthly kingdoms is to be secondary to the one in the gospel. Now that raises a bunch of questions. It should. Uh, questions like, what does it mean to live worthy of the gospel? What does it mean to live, a, live as a citizen of the gospel? That's just odd. What even is the gospel? Now, when, when we hear, hear live uh, wor- as worthy citizens of the gospel, or even as the ESV says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, what we automatically think is be good, right? Of course that's what we think. Be good, be moral, be upstanding. I mean, this is the Bible, right? So what Paul must mean to be worthy would to be good and moral. But the problem with that, and if you've been at Holy Cross for any amount of time, I hope this is just like, boom, it just sticks out to you immediately, is that the gospel isn't about being good. And if the gospel isn't about being good, then being worthy of the gospel isn't going to be about being good. Because Christianity isn't ultimately about being good, that word gospel is, is, means news. It is, it is the news that God has finally come to answer his promise to rescue us from our deepest need. That he has done this through and only through Jesus. And that our deepest need is that we, were, we are alienated from God, guilty of betraying him, and irreparably broken. That we can't fix ourselves. And so that news is that Jesus came to live faithful to God, unlike us. To live completely dependent on God, unlike us. And died to bear our guilt in our place. So what's more, the the news is that the benefits of what Jesus has done is available by grace. In other words, not by what we do, by by something that we didn't deserve. And and so it is a gift. It is a gift to receive. It's not an accomplishment to achieve. And if that's what the gospel is, can we just agree that that has nothing to do with being good? It has nothing to do with being good. It's news that we are way worse than we think, in fact, but way more loved than we could have imagined. It's news that Jesus is more than enough for our need, but at the same time, news that there's no hope outside of him. So if that is the gospel and living worthy of it doesn't mean good, what does it mean? Thankfully for us, Paul explains it. He gives us a really easy like explanation, and it basically comes down to three things, right? He says, basically, living as worthy citizens of the gospel will mean unity, Evangelism and boldness. Unity, evangelism, and boldness. Let's look at those. 
The first is unity, standing united. Keep reading verse 27. He says, Live worthy of the gospel, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit. Now stop there, because this is so great. Remember what I said a few seconds ago that, that um, Philippi was probably filled with, with, filled with Roman citizens, and one of the ways to get your Roman citizenship was through military service? Well, Philippi was actually established as a Roman colony, and it was populated by ex-soldiers. And so this word right here, to stand firm, would have been particularly poignant to them, because that is a military term. The, the word standing firm is how you would describe a shield wall. I know that doesn't mean much, so, so follow me. The Greeks invented this thing called the phalanx, right? Maybe you've heard of that. They would have all these guys, these soldiers, they called hoplites, and they would have these big shields. And the first row of guys would all stand shoulder to shoulder with their shields locked together. Boom. And the guys behind them would have their spears sticking in front of the shields, and they'd all kind of duck down, and then they'd move forward as a unit. It was a phalanx. Now, the Romans didn't invent the phalanx. The Romans didn't really invent anything. But they did improve on everything. That was kind of what they thought they could do. So they improved on it. And they, they had their own version of this with their centurions. And so when you, when you would talk about standing firm, what Paul is trying to get is be like these guys with their shields locked as a unit. And you get the picture, right? Paul says that Christians, the church, are to be united like that. Now let me tease that out for a minute. For a soldier in a phalanx, for a soldier in a shield wall, unity was a matter of life and death. Because if you're somehow not unified with that dude next to you, there's a spear coming through. You're going to meet it. It's going to be ugly. What bound you to the person next to you, that, the person in that shield wall with you, had nothing to do with where you grew up. It had nothing to do with your preferences. It had nothing to do with your race. It had nothing to do with your feelings on, of, on the emperor. There was a principle higher than those things. You were a soldier. And your life depended on keeping your shield locked with that guy next to you. And so Paul envisions Christians as being united in a similar way. Part of living worthy of the gospel, living as a worthy citizen of the gospel, then is to live in a way that doesn't allow the divisions of the world to penetrate into this place. You know, divisions like race. Uh, politics is a great season for it. Socioeconomic class, even gender. And not allow those things to fracture us. There is something greater than all of these things, and that is that we belong to Christ. He is our unity. So the first thing that being living as a worthy citizen of the gospel will mean is being a church, a, a, a band of Christians that is united. The second thing that Paul mentions is fighting for the faith. Let's keep reading. He says, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Now, if you're new to the Bible, and some of us in here are... Um, Paul, the Apostle Paul who wrote this, um, is, is an expert wordsmith. And what I mean is that he often will change the way he speaks, not the content, not the content of what he says, but the way he describes it depending on his audience. Today we call that contextualization. He takes what he's going to say and he changes the way he says it, not the content, but the way he says it depending on the people he's talking to. It makes the most sense to them. And he's doing that here again. Because that word that we translate striving side by side is, again, it's kind of a militaristic term. In fact, it would have been very prevalent for anyone in a Roman city who happened to have this thing they called an arena. Because that is a word that you would use for gladiators. Fighting. As a unit. 
fighting together, side by side. I mean, if you've ever seen the movie Gladiator with Russell Crowe, it reminds me of him establishing that little group of guys in the middle who all are thinking they're going to die until the general comes in and he gets them together and they actually win, right? That, that's what it's talking about. New Testament scholars will tell you it comes from the arena. It's a gladiator image. But this image is not defensive. The last one was, right? Create that shield wall. This one's not defensive, it's offensive. They are to be fighting together to defeat their enemy. And so Paul says part of living as worthy citizens of the gospel is doing this. It is advancing together for the faith of the gospel. Now, if you're not a Christian here this morning, and you hear me say things like advancing together for the, for the faith of the gospel, fighting for the faith of the gospel, right now you're thinking this is one of your biggest issues with Christians, right? Because let's be honest, like making converts just seems wrong in our pluralistic way of seeing the world. But in many ways, that's kind of the issue, whether we see it or not, that pluralistic way of seeing the world. Because you see, Christianity isn't pluralistic. Christianity is not pluralistic at all, which doesn't mean that the Bible, doesn't, that the Bible is somehow like ignorant of other ways of viewing the world. It's, it's very knowledgeable about other ways of viewing the world. It speaks against them all the time. Uh, it... But what it doesn't say is that all of those ways of seeing the world are equal. You see, pluralism itself is a worldview. By, by that, what I mean is it's kind of a religious outlook. And what it does is it says that all ways are equal. And exclusive claims like Christianity is the only way, Jesus is the only way to God, that it, claims like that are both ignorant and immoral. Now, the ironic thing about, about that is that most pluralists... Um, don't understand that it's a way of viewing the world. Don't understand that it's a worldview. It, it, to them, it just seems self-evident. So they don't understand that when they tell Christians that they shouldn't make converts because no one has all religious truth, that, in fact, they are trying to convert them to their exclusive religious truth, that pluralism is right and Christianity is wrong. It kind of self-defeats. But that's an aside. Let me suggest two ways, friends, that we strive together for the faith of the gospel. The first is um, sharing the faith, sharing uh, the gospel with those who aren't yet Christians. Now, I know this is hard for many of us, but Paul is clearly saying that living worthily, living as worthy citizens of the gospel, involves desiring, involves praying for, involves seeking to see others come to faith. And by that, he doesn't say it's just one or two of us. It's like, well, you leave that to the professionals. What he's saying is that we do this together. We are all to make disciples in the areas that God has placed us. So that's the first thing that advancing the faith will mean. The second thing, though, means evangelizing each other. And now I say that, and some of you are like, Rick, like, I got the gospel thing, man. Walked the aisle, did that, been there, I'm fine. Really? Are you? So if you are anything like me, your heart is tough soil. It is very easy, and some of you know this, some of you are going to start nodding as soon as I say this, but it's very easy to begin with the gospel... Begin with the truth that, that everything is about Jesus, that it's all about Jesus, and then to very quickly be pulled back into the idea that everything depends on you, right? It is very easy to start with, uh, Christ alone saves me, that is, he who saves me, he's the one who makes me acceptable to God, and very quickly be pulled into, but God likes me more when I'm doing better. God likes me less when I'm not doing good. But maybe you're not like me. But here's what I need, though, friends. I need you to preach the gospel to me all the time. And my bet is that we need each other 
We need each other to contend for the gospel with each other. Now, so, so one thing is advancing the faith outside. One thing is also fighting for one another in the faith. Last thing on this. When Paul mentions uh, in the last point, he says, you know, standing together, striving together with one spirit. And here he says, by being in one mind. What, what he is not doing is dividing up the human person. Um, actually, both words in the original are, are, are pretty much, they mean pretty much the same thing. So what he isn't saying is that in our spirits we stay unified, but we advance the gospel with our minds. He means that our unity and our action are to be as one, as one person. We are pulling together to see the gospel advanced in our community and our church unified under Christ. Okay? So the first thing is unity. The second thing is evangelism. The last thing is boldness. It's refusing intimidation. Look at verse 28. Lastly, he says, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. Now stop there because we'll get to the rest of it. What this is speaking to is boldness. As Christians, listen to me, especially if you're a Christian here this morning. As Christians, opposition should not surprise us. I know that it does, but it shouldn't. You see, the problem is, is that we tend to see opposition, suffering, those kind of things, as, uh, as kind of a sign that God isn't with us, don't we? Things start to go bad in your life, like people, people you're starting to, to uh, live out the gospel in your home or in your neighborhood or in your, in your workplace, and you start to get, um, you start to be, uh, you know, mildly persecuted for that. Like people ignore you, make fun of you, marginalize you, all these things, and we go, Maybe God, God's not in this. Or, or things start going bad for us and we, we start to believe that. The line of thought goes, if God is in this, right? If God is in this, it will be easy and painless. Right? How'd that work for Jesus? I mean, really. I don't, I, you know, we, we can argue back and forth on whether or not I'm following God's will for my life or you're following God's will for your life, but I'm pretty sure Jesus was following God's will for his life, right? How did it go for him? You see, that's Paul's point here. Opposition should be expected and should make us bold. Being a worthy citizen of the gospel means not being intimidated by opposition to the gospel. Now, notice what I said there. I didn't say opposition to a particular political ideology... I didn't say opposition to even a moral position, even if that moral position is in line with the gospel. What I said is opposition to the gospel. This is so important. And it comes alongside the talk about suffering for the sake of Christ that Paul says there in verse 29. Because when Paul mentions suffering, when he says it has been granted to you, and how many, how many of us in here, when he says it's been granted to you that not only should you believe in Jesus, but suffer for his sake, you're like, yay! No, okay, I, I get that. But when he says suffering, when you're suffering for his sake, he doesn't mean getting sick. He doesn't mean um, necessarily losing your job. He doesn't mean the kind of suffering that's kind of normal for life in a broken world. What he means is suffering as a direct result of bearing the name Christian, bearing the mission of Jesus. In the Philippians day, it had economic, it had social, even at times judicial consequences. Paul is saying that knowing your primary citizenship is in the gospel, the kingdom of God, means not letting such things hinder your boldness for Jesus. If we suffer, Paul says, we actually have that much more in 
in common with our Savior. We have that much more in common with Christ. So that's it. Being a worthy citizen of the gospel will mean unity, evangelism, and boldness. Clear? Good. Now let's press it, press it in a bit. Because here's the temptation right now. Some of us hear that, and we're talking about unity, and maybe we're okay with that. And some of us hear evangelism, we're like, mm, and then boldness, like, mm. And so we're like, I ain't doing that. Okay? <laughs> I ain't doing that. Rick, that sounds nice, but I ain't doing that, and you can't make me. I'll speak to that in a minute. Okay, others of us are like, okay, that's what, that's what the Bible says. I just, I'm, I'm going to have to try harder. Okay? Because listen, this is where we go off track. If the gospel is all about grace, if it is all about God applying the work of Jesus to us, then trying harder places us in a different category. It removes us from that and places us in a different category. There has to be a gracious principle at work if this command to live as worthy citizens is to be followed. So here's what I mean. Let's start with unity. If you and I try harder to live uh, in unity, to have unity with other Christians, what we will eventually do is we will eventually fracture because it's so hard to do that when we're just trying harder. We'll, we will eventually fracture into groups of those who agree with us, look like us, or act like us. Because that's about all we can, we can muster. Because it's really hard to like people who don't think the same things we do, don't look like us, don't act like us. But Christian unity is deeper, and it is based on grace. Okay, listen, Christian unity is gospel-centered because it says at our root, we are all the same. All of us. That there is no one kind of in a different category. At root, we are all sinners before God and in need of his grace in Jesus. Now, sure, my sin may look different than your sin. I almost guarantee it does. Of course it does. But whether you are someone hooked on approval, hooked on meth, or hooked on success, we all need the same thing. We all need grace. So our unity is based on the fact that we have all experienced the same grace in Christ, not more grace, not less grace. The same grace in Christ. We are all united to Jesus. So that what is most true of us is that we are his. And that extends beyond those divisions that we normally see. But it has to begin with grace. Okay, so that's unity. Evangelism. Here's the way that works out. If we just try and share our faith more, what we are going to end up doing is see people as projects. Which both will turn them off to us as it should and, and kind of disqualify the entire process. Evangelism has got to be born out of grace. Because what it says is that no one, no one was as far from God or further from God as I was. And if God can save me, he can save anybody. It says, I can't believe that God would have grace on me. You need to hear about how great this dude is. Evangelism is also born out of grace. Boldness. Boldness is born out of grace as well. Listen, if you just try harder to be bold, you're going to be a jerk. Some of you all are. Maybe I am. Eh. You're thinking that now, right? Boldness is born out of grace because it says that the thing I need most, the love of God in Christ, cannot be taken from me. You can't take it from me. Dudes with a gun can't take it from me. You can take my cultural power... You can take my money. You can even take my freedom. But I'm secure in Jesus because of what he has done, not because of what I have done. So do you see that? Grace has got to undergird our worthy living. If it doesn't, 
it isn't worthy living in the gospel. It may be moral, it may be accepting, but it isn't the gospel. It isn't Christian. The Christian life is bound up in the gospel. The last thing I want to talk about this morning is checking your passport. If we're supposed to be citizens of the gospel, then every once in a while I think it's helpful for us to check our passport, right? Because some of us here listen to this, and the desire for unity with Christians not like us, the desire to share the gospel with anyone or even to risk much in boldness just isn't there. And for others of us, the desire to have the desire for those things just isn't there, right? So my question is this. If you have no desire to be unified, to worship with, to do life with Christians who don't like, look like you, if you refuse to risk anything for the name of Jesus, if you have no desire to even pray for others to know Jesus, do you cherish him at all? I'm serious, right? So don't, don't check out on me. Because the Bible does present this possibility that, you're, that, that our faith really isn't faith at all. It's presumption. Because you can know a lot about Jesus. You can know a lot about God, but not know Jesus. Not know God, actually, at all. Right? Just as much as some of y'all know an awful lot about stars because you read People magazine all the time. But you don't know them. You know what's about them. It may be this morning that the Spirit of God is telling you that you may be a cultural Christian, but you are not an actual Christian. Born again, made new by the Spirit, and trusting in Christ alone. And so if you don't have the desire for these things, but you want the desire, like, I, I, don't, I don't have the desire to do that, but I desire to desire that, then, then just go to the Lord and ask. Now, what I don't mean is the whole, like, um, well, I know I should, but I shouldn't, so. Because, you know, if that isn't desire. That's a kind of a form of self-loathing. Well, I know I should be like this, but I'm not. Which really means... I mean, I know Jesus says that, but I ain't going to do that. So, grace. Right? It's kind of the, I'm not following Jesus on this no matter what you say. See, if you don't even have the desire for the desire, please be honest before the Lord. You don't have to perform for me. I'm not your judge. I, no, you don't have to perform for me. But know that when Paul says... This, Paul says that what he's just described, this is a citizen of the gospel. In other words, this is a Christian. We may need to grow in this, all of us do, myself included, but it must be present. So let me ask you something. One last question. What do you think could happen if there was a group of people whose unity transcended race and gender and ideology because it was founded on Jesus in our day of nonstop subgroups and radical individualism. What could happen if that group sought to see others brought into the faith and the group itself grew more in line with that same understanding of, gospel, of the gospel? What could happen if this group believed that Jesus really fulfilled their greatest need in such a way that they were winsomely bold? Winsomely bold. Not jerks, they're just winsomely bold. I would say that such a group by the power of the Holy Spirit could transform a city, a community, even the whole valley, because no one would know what to do with them.
A group diverse but united, gracious, yet calling others to faith, bold, yet humble. Only God could make that kind of people. Let's pray that he does. Would you pray with me? Father, to live as a worthy citizen of the gospel is beyond us. And so we ask for your grace. In our day, uh, today, in which um, perhaps as the Philippians could be really proud of their, their Roman citizenship, maybe today we are more uh, hooked on our nationalism than on our place in the kingdom of God. If that's the case, Lord, I pray that you would, that you would break us of that. In a time where we're probably more afraid of being culturally marginalized than we are of, of uh, denying our Savior, we pray that you'd break us of that. In a time where we are more willing to watch people uh, walk their way into judgment rather than be seen as weird, I, I pray that you would break us of that. Make us into a people, Lord, that by grace see ourselves as united to other Christians because of Jesus and not because of the fact that of our appearance or of our ideologies. Would you make us a people who uh, winsomely share the faith with others as beggars helping other beggars where to find bread? And where do you, would you make us bold, trusting that Christ is enough? And through a broken people living like that, would you, would you expand your kingdom and let justice and righteousness come on this city and in this community throughout the valley. We ask in Christ's name.